As you know, we are finishing today our short hymnology series, looking at uh, three particular Christmas hymns and the historical and theological background uh, of those hymns to further our um, our heart connection to those songs so that when you hear a song like Joy to the World, you just don't simply think of Clark Griswold about to put together his uh, lights uh, while they're doing the drum roll and Christmas vacation, but you think further behind that to the great theology and history and past of those wonderful songs. And so uh, today we'll be looking again at Joy to the World, and, and thankfully uh, the one who wrote this rooted this in Scripture, uh, which makes it a little bit easier for us to map out. So if you would, turn in your Bibles to Psalm 98. And when you get there, uh, you can go ahead and stand for the reading of God's Word. uh, Because we're going to read Psalm 98 this morning and unpack joy to the world. And this is where, again, the author of this song uh, got his theology and his basis for uh, this particular psalm. Psalm 98. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have gained him the victory. The Lord has made known his salvation. His righteousness he has revealed in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his mercy and his faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth in song, rejoice and sing praises. Sing to the Lord with the harp, with the harp and the sound of a psalm, with trumpets and the sound of a horn. Shout joyfully before the Lord, the King. Let the sea roar in all its fullness, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills be joyful together before the Lord. For, get this, eight verses of that, and then here's the reason. For he's coming to judge the earth. With righteousness he shall judge the world and the peoples with equity. First Baptist Church of Grey Gables, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures. Let's go to the Lord and thank him for his word. Gracious Father, we come before you this special week as we celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ. Um, Father, asking for your blessing, Lord, there's just... There's no one else that's been born that's been worthy of such an honor as King Jesus. And so uh, we know that because he was born to die for the sins of his people. You were born, Lord, to take away our sins and reconcile God to man. He was born to live a perfect life that we cannot and to purchase for us a righteousness we would never be able to attain. And so when we hear the beauty of what this season means, Father. We shout for joy at the work of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Joy uh, is defined as an intense or especially ecstatic happiness. It's, It's the extreme end of happiness, just as there are Uh, We know various degrees of sadness, right? You can be kind of down, just having a rough moment or a rough day. You can be melancholy or you can have flat out full on depression. There are also varying degrees of happiness. The highest, most extreme end of happiness is joy. Joy is not dependent on anything else other than the heart. See, many of us are happy 
how many of us would we say are joyful? There are going to be a lot of joyful children six days from now as they open up their gifts. There's going to be a lot of joyful parents who are going to have joy in giving their children gifts. But the question is, how do we sustain that joy all the time? We, we already looked earlier this year at joy extensively because joy is connected to obedience to the gospel. But we need to be reminded, friends, that if we are Christians, we are called to be joyful. Did you know that? We're not called to be down and out, but, but to have such a joyful attitude on life, regardless of circumstances, that people ought to ask us why it is we have so much joy. And, and that's not my opinion. That's the word of God. In fact, I just want to list through how much the Bible talks about joy, even in the midst of circumstances. We are to have joy in the face of suffering. That comes from James chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, that tells us, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. That seems counterintuitive, doesn't it? But that's the command of Scripture. We are to have joy because we know in the midst of that suffering that it is actually producing perseverance and righteousness. We're called to have joy because it's the outcome of righteousness. In Proverbs 10.28, the Bible says, The hope of the righteous will be gladness, but the expectation of the wicked will perish. The hope of a righteous person is to be joyful, gladness. The thought of Jesus Christ is said to have filled us with joy. 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 8 and 9 says, Whom having not seen you love, though now you do not see him, yet believing, what do we do? You rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Is that your heart? <laughs> Do you have an inexpressible joy? Joy comes from faith in Christ. We know that God is the ultimate source of joy. Romans chapter 15 verse 13 says, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. We know not only that is God the source of our joy, but, but God's joy gives us strength. Brother Bob, you know this one. Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 10. Then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet, and send portions to those for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not sorrow, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. When, when you're living by the power of the Holy Spirit and you are in his word, you have joy. And that joy comes with strength. Not only that, but we're commanded to actually joyfully sing. Isaiah chapter 12 verses 5 and 6 says, Sing to the Lord, for he has done excellent things. This is known in all the earth. Cry out and shout, O inhabitant of Zion. For great is the Holy One of Israel in your midst. We also know that joy is what drove Jesus to the cross, wasn't it? Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, 
who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Not only that, but Jesus actually wants you to share in that joy. He desires you to be joyful. John chapter 16, verse 24. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Christ's joy can't be taken away from us. John chapter 16, verse 22. Therefore, you now have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and your joy no one will take from you. Joy is the kingdom of Christ. Romans chapter 14, verse 17. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. That means that all of eternity will be joy. And that joy finds, again, its fullness in Jesus Christ. John chapter 15, verse 11. These things I've spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. Or John 17, 13. But now I come to you and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. We are called to be joyful children of the king. It's at this time everybody turn around and say thank you to Nate for hanging in there with me throughout these things. Thanks, buddy. Appreciate it, man. Great job. Yeah, that's right. No half claps. Give him a round of applause. That's my man right there. That's right. So therefore, because of the plethora of ways the word of God speaks of joy, of course, I thought it was appropriate for our, our last hymn to be the great hymn by Isaac Watts, Joy to the World, right? If, if that's true, that, that the Bible has this much to say about being joyful, then why do we struggle so much with joy? And where can we go for our foundation to find joy in our hearts? Well, that's what we find in Psalm 98. And that's where, again, the writer of this hymn found his inspiration from. But let's stick to the pattern we did with the last two hymns and begin by looking at the historical background of this particular song. Let's begin with the historical background. Uh, that's the first thing we'll look at. And we're going to first look at the date, which is in 1719. This hymn, Joy to the World, was first published in the year... 1719. So that's about 20 years before the song Hark the Herald Angels Sing that we looked at last week. And much like last week's hymn, uh, we, we saw last week that the great theologian Charles Wesley wrote it and that George Whitfield, another great theologian, tweaked it a little. This hymn too also has in its place a great theologian who wrote it. His name is Isaac Watts. Uh, and let me start, stop right here and recommend to you, if you haven't got a Christmas gift for somebody who loves theology and history, um, a line of godly men written by uh, Stephen Lawson at Ligonier Ministries uh, writes uh, volumes of biographies on godly men, and they have one on Isaac Watts. Uh, was able to listen to it on audiobook this week. It's phenomenal, and so are the rest of them. They got Spurgeon and Martin Lloyd Jones and all kinds. So, a uh, great resource for that. And that's where I found most of this information. Isaac Watts was a great man. Born in the year 1674, he died in 1748, but he, he didn't write as many hymns as Charles Wesley did. Wesley wrote over 6,000 hymns, but Watts only wrote 750, many of which are still around today. 
Some of the hymns that Isaac Watts wrote include When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. We know that one, right? Alas, and did my Savior bleed? How sweet and awful is the place? And of course, the song we'll be looking at today, Joy to the World. He was one of the greatest theological hymn writers of all time. Each of his songs are deeply theological, and that is in part because of his father. See, when Isaac was born in 1674, his dad wasn't around. But not because he abandoned him, but because he was in jail. Not because he was a criminal, but because he was a nonconformist to the Church of England. He was part of that Puritan movement. He would not conform to the religious Phariseeism of the Church of England, so he was put in jail for that. And I think seeing his father have such biblical convictions over what the Word of God says is really what gave Isaac his foundation and love for deep theology. It, en it emboldened and encouraged him to continue in the footsteps of his father. Isaac was a child prodigy, he was a genius. He learned Latin at the age of four, being an English speaker in England. He learned Greek at the age of nine, French at the age of 11, and Hebrew at the age of 13. But he didn't know how to play Fortnite, so, you know, our generation's just as good. It's fine. Nothing's, nothing on the teenagers today. But no, could you, could you imagine by the age of 13 knowing five different languages? He would later go on to write some 30 theological treaties. He wrote essays on psychology, astronomy, philosophy. He was also a minister whose sermons filled three entire volumes. And, and he was said at having the gift of rhymes even at an early age. One account of Isaac Walk says that as he had his eyes open while he was praying one time with his family, his father asked him what he was doing opening his eyes during the prayer, which... As every kid knows, how does the father know he has his eyes open during the prayer, right? Watts responded to his father, There was a mouse for want of stairs ran up a rope to say his prayers. His father was enraged that he was coming up with a rhyme in the middle of the prayer and began to discipline him. And Watts replied, Oh, father, father, pity take, I will no more verses make. His intelligence gained so much attention that by the time it came off for him to go to college, he had several wealthy people in the community offer to pay for his schooling at Oxford. But holding his father's convictions of nonconformity, he refused to go to Oxford, Oxford for free because Oxford was a, an Anglican school. Instead, he went to a lesser-known nonconformist college in the city of London. But Isaac Watts became known as the father of English hymns, and that all began one day, again by his father, who was really tired of Isaac constantly complaining of the lack of true songs being sung by the church. And so his father said, if you think you can do better, son, why don't you write a hymn? And the next week he wrote his first hymn. That hymn is called Behold the Glories of the Lamb, which if you know is a really wonderful hymn. But, but Watts was often discouraged by the lack of emotion and truth in the worship of the day. In fact, he once said this quote. He said, To see the dull indifference, the negligent and thoughtless air that sits upon the faces of a whole assembly while the psalm is upon their lips might even tempt a charitable observer to suspect the fervency of their inward religion. Whew. Basically, he's saying if you had true faith and true religion, a true relationship with the Lord, there would be some sort of expression of your love in that song. You would not be able to contain the joy of what you're singing. 
The psalmist wrote with emotions, we should sing with emotion. It could also be said that one reason he had such an expression of joy in some of his hymns and a deep root of theology is because of the hard life he did live in some aspects. Uh, in fact, he was known as someone who did not have uh, great stature. He was looked at and, and picked on his entire life for his appearance. In fact, one article stated this. They said, His illness and unsightly appearance took its toll on his personal life. His five-foot, pale, skinny frame was topped by a disproportionately oversized head. Almost every portrait of him depicts him in a large gown with large folds, an apparent attempt by the artist to disguise his homeliness. And this was probably the reason for Elizabeth Singer's rejection of his marriage proposal. As one biographer noted, though she loved the jewel, she could not admire the casket which contained it. <laughs> what a nice lady, right? Um, that's quite a description of somebody being a casket. Well, Oftentimes, out of those deep heartaches and feelings of sorrow, if we know history, comes some of the greatest writings of Scripture, right? Uh, the greatest psalms that we read are almost universally ones that come from a state of heartache and despair. And, and that's really where Isaac Watts found his motivation to write. Toward the end of his life in 1719, he published a hymn book called The Psalms of David, imitated in the language of the New Testament. Uh, the point of the hymnal was to rewrite some of the Psalms of David through the eyes of, of the gospel. And he says in the opening and introduction of this hymnal, he says, They ought to be translated in such a manner as we have reason to believe David would have composed them if he had lived in our day. He went through the Psalms and, and loosely wrote them through the eyesight of someone who was living in the days of the New Testament church. By the way, that still happens today. In fact, some of the greatest hymn writers of our time, they do that exact thing. They take scripture and they write it through the lens of, of, of what we're going through today. And so that's, uh, they take these theological truths and they write them in that mindset. So, so perhaps most interestingly about the song, the song we sing at Christmas, Joy to the World, if you were here during our First Thessalonians series, it was not written as a Christmas carol. The song Joy to the World was meant uh, um, to celebrate that God had brought salvation to the world. Which you think, well, that would be a great Christmas carol, but, but hang in there. It's a loose rewrite of Psalm 98, and it's actually written about the second coming of Christ. It's not written about the incarnation. It's written about the return, hence the last verse in Psalm 98 that tells us that. In fact, the hymn's original title was The Messiah's Coming and Kingdom. We're not totally sure when it became a Christmas carol or how it became a Christmas carol or why it became a Christmas carol, but that's neither here nor there. I'm, I'm just really thankful we do sing it at Christmas. Now, in terms of the melody that we have, I, I didn't realize how much hymns change over the, ter, uh, over the course of, of time. Uh, the melody we sing finds its roots from George Frederick Handel, the same Handel from Handel's Messiah, right? And even though Handel was actually a contemporary of Watts, they did not work together or write this hymn together. In fact, I'm not even sure they ever met. Uh, but the arrangement comes not from Handel. It comes from a man by the name of Lowell Mason. Lowell Mason was born in the United States. And he was a great musical composer during his day, writing over 1,600 hymn tunes. And many of the hymn tunes we have today come from this man, Lowell Mason. Uh, he made the tune, Nearer My God to Thee, and he also wrote the tune for Mary Had a Little Lamb. 
which I think the first one's better, but he's probably more famous for the second one. In 1836, over a hundred years after Isaac Watts wrote Joy to the World, Mason takes part of Handel's Messiah and writes his own arrangement. He calls it Antioch, and he publishes it in 1836. And then that tune gets refined a few times over the years, and the fourth edition of his arrangement in 1848 becomes the tune and the arrangement we sing today. That's one of the most interesting things about this series for me, is seeing how how the songs have orchestrated and, and been brought together over the period of time to the ones we have today. I didn't know that much took... Uh, that had that history, so that's interesting. But let's turn now again to the most important part, and that is the theological background of the hymn. And in doing that, we turn back to Psalm 98. See, we said at the beginning, right, that we are called as Christians to be full of joy, which is a happiness to the extreme. It's a joy that's not dependent upon circumstances, but are standing before God through the work of God. We can be joyful, yet sorrowful. We can be joyful and also really feel and hurt in the midst of trials and sufferings. We can be joyful in pleasant times and in dark times because we are called to be joyful. And Christ is the source of joy. He's the fullness of joy, and his joy is given to us. So how are we to be joyful? What are the keys to living the life full of the joy that Christ gives us? Well, Borrowing from Psalm 98, Isaac Watts writes in this hymn, I think four great reasons I think we can see that we're called to be joyful. The first reason is really the most important reason, and it's this. The first reason we're called to be joyful is because Christ saves we could stop right there, couldn't we? We're joyful because Christ saves. And we see that in the first three verses of Psalm 98. At the most basic foundation, we have joy because Jesus Christ has saved us. If he did not save you, you'd be hopeless. If he did not save you, you'd have every reason not to have joy. If he did not come 2,000 years ago to live a perfect life and die on the cross, you'd be suffering eternal punishment for all eternity underneath the wrath of God, certainly. But if he has saved you, then how can you not be joyful? How can we sit and be so solemn, down, downcast all the time, knowing that Christ has saved us? The psalmist starts off his psalm this way. He says... Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. You know, the Christian life is a life of newness. We're a new creation, been given a new heart, given new ears to hear spiritually, new eyes to see spiritually. We've been given new speech because we were spiritually made mute and dumb, and now we can speak, and we've been given a new life. We are the new wineskins versus the old wineskins, and Christ makes all things new. That's what he says in Revelation 21.5, right? Behold, I make all things new. So the psalm often talks about a new song. It it talks about it in Psalm 33, 40, 144, 149, and others. But but why are we singing a new song? Well, verse 1 continues. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. Well, marvelous we know means wonderful surpassing or extraordinary apart from anything and everything else it stands alone and so the question would be what are those wondrous things those marvelous things that he has done 
the psalmist goes on to tell us. He tells us that Christ has gained victory. He has gained victory. It says in the text, his right hand and his holy arm have gained him the victory. And, and by the way, whenever in scripture you see the Bible talk about the right hand or the right arm of God, that's always, always, always signifying his power, his authority, his sovereignty. It's a, it's a symbol of his might. Psalm 110.1 says, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Indicating that in Christ Jesus, all of his enemies are made nothing as he sits at the right hand of the Father. Friends, you do have an enemy, and you know that enemy is Satan. It's death, and it's sin, and Jesus Christ has gained victory over all of that. Therefore, we have great joy because he's gained victory. Not only is it a wonderful, marvelous work that he has gained victory, but the means by which is as well. And secondly, the wonderful thing, the marvelous thing he has done, we also see in the text, is he's revealed his salvation. See, not only did Christ gain the victory, but he, he made it known. Do you ever just, just sit and thank the Lord that he not only decided to send Christ into this world, but he actually revealed himself through Christ? That apart from his word, we would have no idea of knowing who this God is. Yet he has chosen to reveal it to you. And that in itself is a gift and a, a reason for great joy. Notice it says in verse 2, the Lord has made known his salvation. But also notice he says it's, it's his salvation, right? It's not your salvation. Why? Because he's the one who's done all the work. He's the one who gets all the glory. You did not save yourself, and, and that's actually what he declares to the world. We see it in Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 25, where Paul's unpacking this deep theological truth, and he says this. He says, but now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is Revealed. So, so God's righteousness has been made known to the people. And the way he has done that is through Jesus Christ being witnessed, it says, by the law and the prophets. Verse 22, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there's no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith. Don't you love how the Apostle Paul just keeps reiterating, this is Christ's work, it's God's work, this is Christ's work. He did it, he did it, not you, he did it, right? What God did on the cross was a public display of his glory. It reminded me of the story in Numbers, as we talked about in the Old Testament survey, as in Numbers, when they disobeyed God, remember they got bit all, by the, all got bit by the serpents? So God raised up a staff through Moses, and he said, everyone who looked upon this staff would be healed and saved. That wasn't because there was any magical work by the staff itself. The staff was pointing toward a savior who was coming that they all have to look to. Jesus says, when I'm lifted up, I will draw all men to myself, and that's exactly what happens. Everyone, hear me, everyone has to answer to the cross. He, he publicly displayed it. So back in Psalm 98, not only do we praise God for his salvation, we live joyful lives because he's gained victory. We live joyful lives because he's even revealed this salvation to us. But thirdly, he also reveals his own righteousness. 
Thirdly, we are to, to live joyful lives, and we can have joy because Christ saved us, and, and in so, we see his marvelous work of revealing his own righteousness. He continues on in Psalm 98, his righteousness he has revealed in the sight of the nations. He uncovers it. If God did not remove the veil that is around him, friends, you know that you would not see his righteousness. Isaiah 52.10 says this, the Lord has been made bare his holy arm. I'm sorry, the Lord has made bare his holy arm in the eyes of all the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see it, the salvation of our God. He's revealed his salvation. He's revealed his righteousness. And lastly, we see that we can have joy because he's remembered his love for Israel. He's remembered his love for Israel. We see this in Psalm 98, verse 3. Put your eyes on that with me. It says, He has remembered his mercy and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Friends, it's very important that we know that God remembers his covenant. He doesn't forget what he's promised to do. He remembers his loving kindness and his faithfulness, his mercy and his goodness to the house of Israel. And so we sing to the Lord a new song because of the salvation he's given us. In fact, it reminds me exactly of what we read in Revelation chapter 5, right? You remember that text? It's so glorious, isn't it? That text describes just a heavenly view of this song. No one is worthy to open the scroll. And so John's there and in, in, in the heavens. He's been brought up and he's just weeping uncontrollably weeping. So Jesus Christ stands up and he takes the scroll and he's the only one that can deal with the curse against mankind for their rebellion. He's the only one worthy to open it. So what do the people do in response to Jesus taking the scroll? They sing and burst open with a new song. Worthy is the lamb who is willing and able to open the scroll. And that's exactly what it says in Joy to the World in the first stanza, isn't it? Joy to the world. Be joyful because of what Christ has done. Let earth receive her king. He is the king. And we're to receive the king in his kingdom. Then it says, let every heart prepare him room. You're not saved because your mom and dad are saved. Nor are you lost because your mom and dad are lost. It's a personal responsibility you have to come to grips with. And heaven and nature sing. So not only are we joyful because Christ saves, but I want to look at another reason I think we see from the hymn, Joy to the World, why we're called to have joy. It's, it's because we're joyful because not only does Christ save, but because Christ reigns. <laughs> we're joyful because Christ reigns actively, by the way. He's reigning right here and now. That's what we see in verses 4 through 6 of Psalm 98. This is really perhaps where we most clearly see Psalm 98 mixed in with the hymn, Joy to the World. See, it would be enough for us to sing of joy just because Christ saves. But that's not all that Jesus does. He reigns. Friends, we live in a world of darkness, don't we? But what has he done? He's overcome the darkness. In fact, verse 4 tells us there's two reasons we see in this psalm why Christ reigns. We see two declarations. It says first, shout joyfully to the Lord all the earth. That is, he reigns over all the earth. Jesus Christ reigns over every bit of the earth. He doesn't just rule over a town, a country, a state. Jesus is not just rule over an ideology, a political thinking, or a form of government. Jesus is not just rule over a person, a family, a race, or a gender. Jesus Christ rules over all the earth. 
For him, through him, and to him are all things. Or as Abraham Kuyper once said, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. He reigns over it all. Friends, that sin you are struggling with right now that you brought into service this morning, Christ reigns over it. If you're his child, he has given you everything you need for life and godliness. Therefore, rejoice and sing joyfully that he has overcome that which you cannot. (laughs) He's king over all the earth. And then we see in verse 6 of Psalm 98, it says this. With trumpets and the sound of a horn, shout joyfully before the Lord our King. I'm sorry, before the Lord, the King. There are no other kings. He is the King, and that's the second reason we see. He he reigns because he is the King. He's the King of kings, Lord of lords, name above all names, and sandwiched in between that are shouts and praises to the Lord. In fact, I just want to read verses 4 through 6 for you again. It says this, Shout joyfully to the Lord all the earth, break forth in song, rejoice and sing praises, sing to the Lord with the harp, with a harp and a sound of a psalm, with trumpets and the sound of a horn, shout joyfully before the Lord the King. So why are we so dead when we sing? (laughs) Honestly, why are we not engaged emotionally with what's being proclaimed on a constant basis? I get it. We don't want to be a distraction. I understand that. But friends, we can can go a little bit back that way now, okay? (laughs) I don't think you're going to be a distraction by shouting amen and hallelujah when you hear that Christ is reigning over the darkness of this world. Amen. There you go. That's what the psalmist is saying here. Listen, he says, you have so much joy for what Christ has done because he's reigning, friends. And guess what? He's going to reign tomorrow and the next day and over 2022 and over the next presidential election and for all eternity. He's going to reign. He's reigning. So we shout for joy. And not only does Christ reign but, but we're also joyful. The third reason, I think, is because Christ conquers. Not only has he reigned over this period of time, but he conquers all. Look at verses 7 and 8. It goes right along with Christ reigning. In verse 7 of Psalm 98, it says, Let the sea roar in all its fullness, the world and those who dwell in it. Watts puts it this way in his song. And we actually didn't sing this verse, but it's there. No more let sins and sorrows grow. See, sin is in our lives. And, and it, it, it is as a seed, right? The, the evil seed, it will grow if we do not quench it or put it out. There's always something, by the way, growing within you. And every moment, every day, you're either growing more in righteousness or you're growing more evil. That's the constant struggle. But as the hymn writes, let no more sins and sorrow grow. Because of Jesus Christ, we no longer see that seed of sin growing within us. Yes, we still struggle and wrestle with the flesh, but but we're growing in righteousness because he's promised to grow us in righteousness. In fact, therefore, in James chapter 1 verse 21 says, Therefore lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. 
Let everything praise God because he has conquered everything, the world and all that is in it. Not just the people, by the way, but the world itself. See, the curse of God is far-reaching. The curse that God placed in Genesis 3 was not just a curse on Adam and Eve. He placed a curse upon the earth as well. That's why there's so much destruction. That's why there's tornadoes and hurricanes, earthquakes, diseases, thorns in the ground, weeds, and everything else. You have toil in your work because of the curse of sin. Why? Well, Paul answers that in Romans chapter 8, verses 20 and 21. He says, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. That's why I love that hymn where it says he comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Because you know where the curse is found? The curse of sin is everywhere. And so, therefore, everywhere he makes himself known. And when he returns, there will be no more effects of this cursed world in sin. He makes his blessing flow because he has conquered it all. And that leads us to our final reason we are called to be joyful. And that is, friends, we're called to be joyful because Christ returns. See, I, I always remember thinking of Christmas as simply Christ coming. And the reason I said earlier, I'm so glad we still sing joy to the world, is because let's not stop there. We, we're called for this joy and to celebrate this season awaiting his promised return and looking very forward to that as well. See, it doesn't just end with him conquering, saving, or reigning. It ends with Christ returnal. And so we are joyful because Jesus Christ is coming back, y'all. Christ does reign today, and he does reign with total power and, and, and authority, with sovereign power. He did conquer our sins, so we can shout, for as the curse is found, but he is coming again. Verse 8 gives us the reason for all the joy that it's before in the text. The end of verse 8 tells us, it says, Let the hills be joyful together before the Lord for. Why? For he's coming to judge the earth. It's really incredible to think about that, right? Rejoice because the judge is coming back? Is there anything in your life right now that you might feel is unfair? Friends, rejoice, the judge is coming back. <laughs> Is there anything you've done that's not right? Rejoice because the judge is coming back. And as it says in verse 8, his judgments are righteous and he deals with his people with equity. See, the first time he came in a manger, the second time he's going to be coming on his throne. The first time he rode on a donkey, the second time he's going to be riding on a white horse of victory. The first time he came to die on the cross, the second time... He will come to bring with him the living water of the tree that gives life forever. He will return. So as Isaac Watts declares at the end of his song, he rules the world with truth and with grace. Amen. Isn't it so joyful? Amen. When you read Psalm 98 verse 9, you see he's coming back as the judge and he will judge with righteousness and equity. Friends, if we didn't have Christ, that ought to leave us shaking in fear. If that's all it was, 
But, but Watts saw, when you read this psalm in relation to the coming of Jesus Christ the first time, this verse takes on a whole other manner and meaning because he is coming back with righteousness and equity and he will deal in righteousness and equity. Friends, your righteousness and equity, they're found in Christ. And that is a reason for extreme joy. He makes the nations prove Watts says, enjoy the world. And he does that by displaying two glorious things that we just sung. The glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love. The wonders of his love. Is there anything greater on planet earth than the love of Jesus Christ? Uh, just ponder that great love as we celebrate the Christmas season. As we think about the coming of Jesus Christ this boy Jesus that we celebrate in the manger did not stay in the manger because of his love. The boy Jesus grew up to a man from the town of Nazareth who stepped foot at the age of 30 into the public light and began to break down the barriers of legalism set by the religious right. He said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, and no man comes to the Father but through me. And he lived a perfect life to die on the cross for the sins of his people. And friends, that is the Christmas story the crucified Jesus is reigning today. The crucified Jesus has risen from the dead and he is alive today. It's the greatest gift that can conceivably be given, the gift of salvation. Amen. And just like all gifts, you had nothing to do with it. See, you didn't put this on your Amazon wish list. God gave it to you and he gave it to you freely. Do we need any more reason to have joy? Not only that, do we have any more reason to shout joy to the world? Amen. Would you stand together as we close? Father, Lord, I, I just know, um, Lord, this Christmas season hits so hard. Uh, just for, for my life with the, Lord, the friends and the men and women um, who we've lost this past year, Lord, just the precious people, those who are hurting even now as we think about the Christmas season, Lord, we're, just, we're thankful that no one can take our joy away. Lord, even in the midst of that hurt and that pain that we experience in this difficult time, Father, because of the gospel, we can celebrate it is all because of the gospel. Without the gospel, we would have no reason to celebrate, much less, Lord, celebrate Christmas. But because of the gospel, our hearts are filled with joy. Help us when we're weak and struggling. Help us to fix our eyes upon you in joy. Lord, that when we feel like we're not joyful, Lord, that you would remind us of the truth of your word that would align our hearts with you. Lord, that you give us grace for those moments where we don't act out of our joy when we struggle and wrestle, that you remind us that you're not finished with us yet. Father, you not only came to save, you came to sanctify, and you will glorify. Father, remind us just of our great need and dependence upon you for all things. Oh, and Father, we shout joy to the world, for the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.